morning, everyone, again. Uh, turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2 as we continue our series through this particular book. We'll be looking at two verses this morning. So that's Philippians 2, verse 12 through 13. You'll find that on uh, page 981 in your pew Bible. Now, this is God's holy and inerrant word. So let's give careful attention to it. The word of God. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Heavenly Father, we're asking this morning that you would magnify our Lord, that you would center our thoughts, our minds, on your grandeur of who he is, that you would reorient us in terms of how we think and how we feel concerning our Lord and our God. Would you bless us this morning with those very things? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the course of the last two weeks, we were made to reflect on, were re-exposed to the greatest act of self-sacrifice that has ever taken place in the history of mankind over the last two weeks. Christ Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, eternally existing in perfect communion with the Father, and the Spirit, perfectly loving each other, reigning over all creation. He of whom it is said, by him, that is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is entertained by the inner and outer workings of all the galaxies that exist. Our finite minds are just made to understand that the heavens we know of declare his glory and the skies we see speak of his handiwork. In heaven they were created beings all around his throne day and night, never ceasing to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. And at the same time, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him, there are 24 elders falling down before him, worshiping him, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. He is God, and it was all rightfully his, his to enjoy, his to reign over, and his to receive all the glory from and yet we're told he made no attempts to hold on to all the prerogatives that were his. But instead he left all the riches of glory and became a servant. Was born in our likeness and obediently subjected himself to the gravest fate anyone could ever experience. The wrath of God poured out upon him for the sins of the world. And why? Why? 
Because he knew he was the only one that could rescue the demoniac of Gadarene from the ravages of sin. He knew that only he could provide hope and a future for the Samaritan woman at the well. He knew through Adam and Eve, you and I were desperately lost and in need of a perfect Savior. And so he came and obeyed the law perfectly. He came and suffered the penalty thoroughly and then rose victoriously, conquering death, hell, and the grave, thereby creating the one and only path of reconciliation we have to the Father, justification by faith in Christ alone, our Lord and our Savior, who has now called us to a living hope, to walk obediently as he did, and to speak on behalf to a last, for we to speak on behalf of him to a lost and dying world. The greatest sacrifice ever made in the history of mankind. Second place is millions of miles apart and could never accomplish what he did on our behalf. Nothing comes close. And so as we come to our text, it is this message that we are to know that the Apostle Paul has shared with the Philippians, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the implications that arise from it. I imagine the following words were ringing in the ears of the Apostle Paul. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So the Philippians, though not perfectly so, had a record of obedience to the things they had heard concerning their faith, particularly so in the presence of the one who brought the message of Christ to them, the Apostle Paul. He was called to the Gentiles, and so they were. But now Paul is writing to them from a prison in Rome, and, and so he now knowing and being well acquainted with human nature, knowing our tendency to want to be men-pleasers, to put our best face forward when uh, others are around, but then acting in manner in a manner that's conduct on becoming a Christian in the absence of accountability. He exhorts us with that knowledge to move forward even more. I think of that hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers, we are to move forward even more to engage in the very practical aspect of our faith. They've heard, the Philippians have, what Christ had done for them. They've heard what they have, that is their salvation through him. And now they're told, so they were given all these, these indicatives, that is, here's what Christ has done. And now they're being told what they should be do, what they should do in, in, in because of that, the imperatives what they should do. And so as we look at this text this morning, we're going to look at those particular things, what it is that we should do and what it is that God does. And we're going to do it under three headings. Your role in your walk with Christ, God's role in his walk with you, and the fruit of God's work. And so first, your role in your walk with Christ. Paul says in light of who Jesus is and what he has done, his example you, beloved, in light of those things, you, beloved, work out your salvation. Now let me start here by saying what Paul is not saying in Philippians 1.6. Paul has already told us that it is God who started a good work in us in Philippians 1.6. 
Paul has already told us in Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And he told the Galatians, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. He then turned around and asked these same Galatians in, in what seemed to be a very exercised state, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul has let us know in no uncertain terms that our salvation, our salvation was all of God. Our justification was all of God. Our declaration that we are reconciled to God, that we are in right standing with God, was all through Christ and his finished work. There was absolutely nothing that we could contribute. So then, what then do we have here? Many are confused about this. Many use this particular text to say that we indeed need to earn our salvation. But what do we have here? In order to clarify this, we must revisit the doctrine of salvation. There we find or are reminded that there are three dimensions or aspects to our salvation, past, present, and future. Addressing this issue, John MacArthur wrote, the past dimension is that of justification when believers place their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and were redeemed. That is the past dimension. The present dimension, what we have in our text, is sanctification, the time between a believer's justification and his death. And the future aspect is glorification when salvation is completed and believers receive their glorified bodies. Believers, therefore, he goes on to say, have been saved, are being saved, and will, listen to that, brothers and sisters, will, not might, be saved. They are to pursue sanctification in this life to the time of glorification. Brothers and sisters, we are to strive to be more and more like Christ on this side of life. That is what Paul is telling us here in this passage. And this matches perfectly with what we heard in the most recent passage, let this mind be in you. A mind of obedience and humility in the face of all. Come what may, again, and I ask you, again, to notice and look at your text and notice that it does not say that you have to work for your salvation or work towards your salvation. It says work out, and we're to do so with fear and trembling. You know, we live in a day and age when many people who call themselves Christians actually treat God as if he's some sort of mamsy-pamsy. It's an outright violation of the third commandment. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. And that brings, uh, to don't bring it to emptiness, his name, to nothingness, a cartoon figure, or maybe just a cosmic vending machine. 
Many assert that the word translated fear here in our text just means like a slight reverence or respect. Indeed, it, it does in fact carry those meanings, but I agree with one scholar who says concerning this phrase, knowing that he serves a holy and just God, the faithful believer will always live with fear and trembling. Fear, he says, translates phobos, the Greek word, which describes fright, fright or terror of God as well as reverential, as well as reverential awe. Unless you think that assertion that that scholar made is unreasonable. Listen to how God's people reacted to him when he spoke the Ten Commandments to them at Mount Sinai. This is Exodus 20, verses 18 through 20. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. When you look at the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament scripture, those same words of fear, afraid, and tremble are the same two words that the Apostle Paul uses in our text. And it goes on to say the passage, and they stood afar off and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let the God, the God that Isaiah came, whose presence Isaiah came in to before and said, woe is me. That God, the God who men continually fell before whenever an angel of God, not God himself, an angel of God showed up and people fell prostrate before them because of their ultimate fear of God. That God, when that God come, Moses said to the people, they said, speak to us. Don't let that God speak to us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear. For God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not listen to the reason, that you may not sin. Beloved, here we find that fear and trembling, which refers to trembling here, refers to shaking. And it's the proper reaction we should have to our awareness of our own spiritual weakness and the power of temptation. As one scholar wrote, an important Old Testament truth is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is not a fear of being doomed to eternal torment, nor a hopeless dread of judgment that leads to despair. It is rather a reverential fear. The word fear is there before a holy concern to give God the honor he deserves and avoid the chastening of his displeasure. Such fear protects, he says, against temptation and sin and gives motivation for obedient and righteous living. And understand this, this fear and trembling is not untethered from everything else. It is in fact anchored in one's deep adoration and love for God, the one who you've been called to love with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. That love and adoration should produce in us a sincere desire not to offend or grieve a thrice holy God, but instead strive to obey, honor, please, and glorify him at all times in every way. So then, 
Believers should have a serious dread of sin and yearning for what is right before God. And that dread should be anchored in a love that seeks to bring honor, praise, and glory to him. To him who is most deserving of all that and more. Knowing this, knowing that this is the disposition and understanding that the Philippians should be in possession of, that we should have that mindset, that disposition, Paul provides the ultimate evidence that should move us towards that disposition, towards proper fear and trembling, grounded in love and appreciation. The reason you should not take the Lord's name in vain, but rather walk obediently before him, actively pursuing and engaging in the means of grace he has provided for you to grow. Prayer, the word, the sacraments, all the things that he's provided for you. Meditation on his word, fellowship with his people, the reason so that you could be molded and shaped into the image of our Lord. The reason you should be encouraged in your walk with the Lord, no matter what the circumstances are, being bolded in your witness before men, is because he is the source of your enablement. For we were told, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's what we heard. And now we hear, for or because, it is God who works in you both to will and to work. Two sides of an inseparable coin. First, we're told that we're supposed to do, and now we're being told how we're able to do what we're supposed to do. We ought to work it out because God has worked it in. There's a stark reality that stands before us. There's no way we can accomplish what we see in verse 12 without verse 13. Jesus himself testified to that fact in the upper room discourse in John 15 when he said, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you, we can do nothing. So you see here Paul tells us that God calls us to obey him. And then in turns right around, he turns right around and through his sovereign power empowers us to be able to do just that. He calls us to be holy. He calls us to holiness and then empowers us to pursue holiness. The word translated as work here is the same word from which we get the English word, our English word energy. God is actively producing in us. He is our source. And what is he producing? Look at the phrase, both to will and to work. The word will here is best understood as desire. The will or desire to do that which is right in God's sight must be there before any effective work will be done towards that end. So both the desire and energy to do what is right comes from God. 
And brothers and sisters, that's why we can hear David while he's repenting in Psalm 51. That's why we can hear him saying, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. God produces the desire in you to do the works he has called you to. And the energy you have, you have to do those works, comes from him. A parent provides everything her child needs to do well in school. Buys her a laptop computer and all the stuff that I didn't have when people went to school back in the day. Pens, pencils, paper, a backpack with every conceivable auxiliary hold holders, pockets in them. The child is then sent to school on a mission to learn and maximize her potential with the ultimate goal being that she would be an active, positive contributor to society, to earn well, to live well, to contribute to her own family, to society, unfortunately. Instead of acting in a manner that would honor her mother's sacrifice and work. All that mom, oh, some of you know what I'm talking about. You put all into the basket and you get sadly disappointed. So mom does all this sacrifice, all this work. And the child goes to school and starts cutting classes, not studying, using the backpack for other stuff, drugs, whatever. Everything other than what the mother provided it for. And as a result of her waywardness, the child feels miserable. Can you see where this child would be dishonoring her parents' efforts, bringing it to naught, emptiness, vanity? Can you see how then this applies to what God has done for you? That mother hasn't even done anything even close to what Christ has done on our behalf. Haven't done anything, haven't given, didn't give the child her own spirit to empower her and to keep her. But that's what we have, the spirit of the living God dwelling within us. We have all this. And so this mom suffered this great disappointment. How much more? How much more devastating is it when we don't glorify God? Well, I tell you, we need to be so glad for his grace. But can you see this applies to him? What he is doing in and through you right now, God has called you to live, called us to live a life of holiness, to be salt and light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, to carry yourself, ourselves as vessels of righteousness for his name's sake. But he hasn't just asked you to be those things and act in a manner he has called you to and not given you the tool to accomplish it. He's given you the greatest thing ever, himself in the midst of all that. He has equipped you and he's equipping you each and every step of the way as you walk through this life in this process of sanctification, being molded more and more into the image of our Lord. And that's why we can exclaim when we think of the fact that he has called us to obey, that he has called us to follow the statutes of his word, 
the dictates of his word and not the dictates of our heart. When he's called us to do all that, and he is the one that's empowering us to do all that, every step of the way, he is the one that started it, will finish it, but we join synergistically in that. We avail ourselves of the means of grace. Every time we have an opportunity to grow in our faith, we grow, we take advantage of that, knowing that he's called us to do, but he is doing through us for his glory. And that's why when we think of how good he is in this process, we claim what a savior, not just a deliverer, but a keeper and an enabler. What a savior. Folks, your Lord is awesome. Our God is awesome. And if that isn't motivation enough for us, let's look at our final point, the fruit of God's work. What have I told you, Pear Orchard? That you can experience true joy and fulfill your number one purpose in life at the same time. Well, guess what? The roadmap is right here in this text. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us that the chief reason we exist is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Well, here's the thing. When God is glorified, it brings pleasure to him. And as his children, we share in the bounty of his pleasure. Our supreme purpose is to obey, worship, and glorify God. And fulfilling that purpose brings pleasure to him. That's what Paul is telling us here. The God who is entertained by galaxies untold, who is in need of nothing, takes personal pleasure in what he inspires and empowers us to do. We don't take what he has done, what he is doing, and will finish lightly. No, instead we commit ourselves in fear and trembling, working out that which he has worked in. Folks, let me tell you something. Next week is our denomination's general assembly, and it is my wholehearted opinion that we would not be dealing with some of the issues we'll be dealing with next week. If we had taken this passage, if many had taken this passage to heart, if we kept the reality of what our Lord left behind in order to identify with us, he left all of what I talked about in the beginning to identify with us. If we kept that in our mind, we would denounce anything that tempts us to identify ourselves with anything else besides him. It's the same with many of the cultural issues we're dealing with in our society today. Blasphemous words, such as what any religious tradition has to say about the will of God is no concern of this Congress, would not be heard coming from those whom we choose to represent us in the place that God has placed us in as his ambassadors. 65% of U.S. citizens claim to be Christians, but yet 70% are now okay with the first institution that God placed in the earth, marriage, the one that represents Christ and his church being desecrated. Unless we stray too far from home, 
Many of the personal issues we deal with in our own homes and sphere of influence would be afterthoughts if we were operating through the fear that produces the wisdom from above. Brothers and sisters, whenever we are tempted to act in our own self-interest, self-ambition, anything that moves us away from obedience and walking in the beauty of holiness, all sorts of humanistic categories, secularism rules our day and the hearts of many Christians. Whenever we're tempted to walk in those directions, we're to remember how Christ acted. Remember our responsibility before God and who it is that's working in and through us and for what purpose he is doing so. I always talk about this, but I'm reminded of how the people in Exodus 19, how well they started in fear and trembling before God. He spoke his word directly to them. And then you move from chapter 19 to chapter 32. And in no time at all, the people of God are no longer walking in fear and trembling, but now they're raising up a golden calf to worship the true God in a false manner. 1 Corinthians 10 says this, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters of some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Again, they asserted that they were worshiping the true God. But in truth, they were worshiping themselves. They lost sight of who Christ was, who God was in that day. As many lose sight of who Christ is in this day and who it is that's working in us for his glory. Let us not be those who lose sight of the fact that God has called us to glorify him, that we are his ambassadors to a lost and dying world, and that we can accomplish all things because it is he who is working in us and through us for his glory and for his purposes. Be strengthened, brothers and sisters, with that knowledge that it is God who is working in us for his glory. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage and the passage that has come before this and we contemplate, reflect on the depths of the sacrifice that our Lord made for us and the walk that he is calling us to even now. Father, we... Again, recognize and we're thankful for what Paul has indicated here that it is God, it is you who is working in us and through us, accomplishing your good pleasure. Father, we recognize that we so often walk in our own path, our own direction, neglecting to keep that which you're saying here at the forefront of our minds. We beg upon your mercy this day that you would grab hold of us and as you send us into our spheres of influence, that you would emblazon these things upon our hearts 
so that we would indeed be great, good ambassadors submitted to the guidance of your spirit, acknowledging you in all our ways and having you direct our path for your glory. Father, would you help us, move us, grab hold of us, do all these things to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.